Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. I am always looking for a great gift idea, and Kokanoo Personal Lubricants are always a huge hit for your partners and the perfect Valentine's Day gift. If you're making clean ingredient swaps, it is so important to make sure you are getting quality ingredients that are good for your body, inside and out. Coconut oil and water-based lubricants have the healthiest ingredients list I've seen. They use all natural ingredients, are cruelty-free, made in the USA, and their packaging is plastic-free. For an exclusive discount code, head to coconut.com. That is coconut without the T. And use code CARALYN15 for 15% off your order. That's K-A-R-A-L-Y-N-N-E-1-5. My code stacks with their on-site discount. So order today and thank me tomorrow. Dr. Scott Norda is board certified in family medicine with additional training and certification in functional medicine, brain health, and longevity. Dr. Norda is passionate about empowering people to live better for longer by proactively addressing the primary root causes of chronic disease. After his father's diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and discovering his own genetic risk of Alzheimer's, he spent two years gathering research and creating the ultimate roadmap for building brain resilience called the Brain Lift Program. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I'm actually really excited for our guest, Dr. Scott Norda. I was just telling him, I'm not quite sure how I found him on Instagram. Someone shared something and then I was like, oh, I like what this doctor is saying. And so I started following him and I've been following him for about a year and just have loved the things that he's said. And so I asked him to be on our show today. So welcome, Dr. Norda, to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. Glad I could join you. Well, thank you. Will you tell my listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background before we delve into our topic today? Of course. Uh, I'm from Utah. Actually, I uh, went to BYU, studied neuroscience, uh, thought I was going to be a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. I love the brain. And then uh, just didn't turn out to be my passion as I spent some time with those uh, in, in the neurology field and found that I kind of fit better in a primary care role. Loved just kind of spending time with people and seeing uh, people of all ages. And I uh, went through family medicine training, medical school in Chicago and family medicine residency in Texas. And then kind of near the end of that process, I started to realize that maybe it wasn't everything that I hoped it would be, but I didn't know what else was out there. And I was finished with my training. And so I I just started to look to see if there was an option to not just do five to 10 minute office visits with people and wanted to feel like I was still making a difference in people's lives. So took up a job with a group out in North Carolina called Doctors Making House Calls and uh, really spent a couple of years there dealing with end-stage chronic disease and kind of of end-of-life issues. And it was great for me and a great learning opportunity uh, and continuing my growth. But I also realized that what we were doing for these people with chronic disease was maybe not the optimal ways that I would want to take care of myself. Uh, as far as just being loaded up with a whole bunch of prescriptions and maybe prolonging life, but probably not in any way improving quality of life. And uh, it was around that same time that my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so it kind of shifted everything for me. I had studied neuroscience, like I said, I felt like I was working with the Alzheimer's disease patients and felt like I was just, I should have been in a position to be able to help. And yet there was nothing that I had to offer. Hmm. And so being in that position as a son where I felt like here I've spent all this time and all this money and all this training and and really don't have anything and our medical system really doesn't have anything to offer. Yeah, it was that combination that kind of made me pause and say maybe I need to do something else with my career right now and started to search and found the Institute for Functional Medicine and realized that there's a way to treat health Uh, or promote health and really address chronic diseases in a much more effective way rather than just diagnosing and prescribing that you can address underlying issues and root causes, which sounds almost ridiculous when I say it out loud now that this wasn't something that I already knew or that we were taught in medical school, but uh, it, it really isn't. And so going back through and understanding nutrition and how specific vitamins and nutrients affect us and how we can 
kind of understand that inflammatory pathways and learning about things like today we're going to talk about toxins and such. And it's certainly not anything I had learned about in medical school. And so for my dad's sake, I, I learned about Alzheimer's disease from Dr. Del Bredesen and others uh, who were kind of on that cutting edge showing that maybe there was a way to to prevent and reverse some of that cognitive decline. And yeah, through the process, put together uh, just some a lot of learning and programs and figured out how to help people create habits. And then, yeah, we created the BrainLift program, six-month kind of reversing and, and preventing cognitive decline. We've worked with metabolic disease and all sorts of other inflammatory conditions since then. And we have a membership-based practice now. So that's the quick of it. I love it. The other exciting things in my life, I, I'm married to an amazing wife and have five kids. And so that's that's kind of the reason why I do what I do. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited for you to be here. And like you said, we're going to talk about brain health and cognitive decline and all those things around Alzheimer's and things like that. So let's just get started if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about maybe toxins and what toxins can do to brain health. Sometimes I feel like people just throw out the word toxins for everything that's out there. And so maybe let's start with the basics, toxins, what's classified as a toxin and how these can affect our brain health. Yeah. So uh, the word often now that's used in research is toxicant rather than toxin, but but let's just stick with the simple one for now. So toxin is pretty much anything that has a harmful effect on our body. Uh, that can be on a macro level, making us feel ill, causing cognitive decline or causing chronic disease, but also on a micro level, kind of creating an inflammatory situation within our, or an environment within our cells or outside of our cells. And they create kind of reactive oxygen species and all the things that kind of create damage, promote aging, promote uh, chronic disease. So those are kind of the things we think about with toxins. And that can be things that we take in from outside the environment. So external toxins. And then we also, our body naturally produces some exogenous or internal toxins just through the processes of metabolizing things. And so, it, yeah, we kind of look at both of those. Okay. So... I love how you explain that. And I know that toxins can affect brain health in certain ways. Like you just said, they can affect aging, correct? And yes. I know they also can affect your memory. So do you want to talk about maybe both those? Yeah. You know, I did a, a reel not too long ago, or, or uh, I've, I guess I've done a couple of reels on aging and kind of what that process is like, but it's basically so much has to do with our mitochondria. So the energy producing part of ourselves that produce ATP and give us energy we need to, to survive and grow and thrive. And mitochondria, the, the research is just expanding like crazy on mitochondria being the primary thing that drives our aging as mitochondria get worn down, as the DNA in the mitochondria get worn down uh, or decrease in number, that that promotes faster aging. And so that's the biggest thing with aging is as we're exposed to toxins, they actually have a toxic effect or damaging effect on the mitochondria in our cells. Uh, and that promotes a faster aging. It decreases our energy, both our brain energy. So we start to drop our cognition, but also our body physical energy uh, in our muscles. And then as people's energy goes down a little bit, then they move less. And that means less mitochondria production within the muscles, which speeds up that process. So it's a process of kind of moving less, having more uh, toxic effects from the chemicals and environment around us that decreases our mitochondria's ability to produce energy. And that's how we age. Yeah, there are a lot of new studies on mitochondria. I love that mitochondria is becoming sort of trendy on social media. More and more are talking about it. But there are things that we can do to support our mitochondria, right? It's not all doom and gloom as we age. So... Tell me some of the things that can help mitochondria. Yeah, so I mentioned that we tend to move less as we age, and movement is probably the number one thing that we can do to boost our mitochondria. There are so many studies on aerobic exercise, really increasing, and, and that allows our bodies to have enough oxygen and oxygen delivery, which is part of that uh, mitochondrial support and ATP production. So uh, aerobic exercise is important and strength training is also really important. Some type of resistance strength training, whether that's weightlifting, push-ups, 
um, resistance bands, anything that's going to strengthen muscles will boost mitochondria. Uh, so that's number one. Exercise out of all the research seems to be the top thing you can do. There are also things I mentioned, oxidative stress is one of the things that causes mitochondrial damage. And so eating antioxidant rich diet is also really helpful. So that's things like lots of herbs and spices. So basil and cilantro and uh, spices like turmeric and cardamom and cumin, all of those things that add a lot of spice and flavor into our food also have antioxidant rich benefits. Uh, as well as real colorful berries and veggies, cherries, pomegranates this time of year. Down here in St. George, we get a lot of pomegranates, so we're loading up on those. So all of those types of foods really have an antioxidant benefit that help decrease the damage on the mitochondria. So there are a couple things. I love that. Also, what are your thoughts on red light? Do you like red light for mitochondria? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a growing body of research on red light therapy. Yeah, I definitely support red light use. We have red light uh, therapy in our sauna, and that combination works really well in an in a infrared sauna. You can actually increase mitochondria through heat therapy and cold therapy. So great time of year to get out there in the cold water, do some cold plunging, and that also increases mitochondria, increases brown fat, which is really rich in mitochondria. Yeah, I actually really enjoy doing red light therapy. So it's something that I talk about quite often. So I'm glad you support it and like it. So moving on from mitochondria, let's talk about some other toxins. Do you feel that there are certain toxins that are specifically bad for the brain or not great for the brain or all toxins are considered equal? Uh, no, there are definitely some that are worse. It seems like the categories that are, have the most toxic effect, especially in promoting kind of inflammatory cognitive decline, uh, and even Alzheimer's disease are going to be certain heavy metals. So that's like mercury, arsenic, aluminum, lead. Those ones are probably the top four. Plastics are a really bad one for the brain. They have certain toxins like PCBs, phthalates, BPA. All of those have specific problematic effects, damaging effects on the brain. Pesticides are really bad. Herbicides uh, like Roundup, uh, weed killer stuff. Uh, that have glyphosate in them are also really bad. And then another one that I never thought I'd run into here in the desert, but we see all the time, interestingly, is mold, mold and mycotoxins. Uh, there's a, a pretty growing body of research on the, the effect that mycotoxins have on the brain. That's interesting because all of those things that you just listed that aren't great for the brain are not great for, you know, depression, anxiety, and hormonal things, the gut. I mean, so it's all interconnected, it seems like. Yeah, pretty much. As I've done my brain research and then put together metabolic programs for the heart and for diabetes and blood sugar stuff and insulin, they, most of the, the things that cause problems for one organ cross over and cause problems in multiple different places. That is true. Okay, so you teach on your site five ways to be a super ager. What does this mean? And what are these five things? Yeah, so, you know, I love longevity. It is my absolute passion because I love watching people age gracefully with energy, with excitement to maintain their personality, probably because of the experience I had with my dad and maybe the, working with those end-of-life patients for a few years there in North Carolina, just the alternative is difficult. And so watching people maintain that uh, is exciting. So for a super-ager, what we looked at in the research, the research has kind of defined a super-ager as kind of people in their 80s whose brains are functioning like they're in their 30s. That's, I guess, the, the, the definition, maintaining that brain function. The wish for all of us. For sure. Okay, so what are those five things? So five things are... Uh, and this was interesting to me. Music was was a big part of that. So music is one of those singing, playing an instrument, uh, singing in a choir, making a music an important part of your life is one of those that, that they found in these super agers. Another one was moving faster. We all try to incorporate exercise. I talked about that, but specifically what they found with these super agers is that they tried to build sort of speed and agility or maintain speed and agility in their movements. Uh, which is something that's really uncommon in the elderly. I think a lot of people as they age start to get more nervous about, I'm going to fall, I'm going to hurt myself. And so they slow down, whether consciously or unconsciously, 
one thing that I've found actually helps people is having a reason to do it. Just getting out and trying to move fast for people who are older is kind of a harder thing to do. But like pickleball is something that people down here uh, love to do. It's growing all over the place. But certainly in St. George, we have pickleball tournaments all the time. And to see these elderly people in their 80s who are bouncing all over the court, kind of using that speed and agility is a really good one. And then having sort of regular practices that create calm in your life. So uh, that might be like practicing deep breathing on a regular basis, uh, other ways to kind of calm your stress, communicating that with other people, connecting with people helps to create that calm. But having regular kind of stress reducing practices is a big one for uh, these super agers. And then the next one is reading. So reading more often is a really good one. This is something that they've looked at in multiple studies as kids grow up. Uh, what does it do for them if they read more often? But they've found the same thing in adults where even if you weren't a big reader earlier in life, if you can start picking up reading and start to really push yourself to read faster and read more, that, that's a big part of this. And then quality sleep is number five. And for some adults, uh, some elderly adults, I think that's a really hard one is to get enough sleep, to get quality of sleep. The circadian rhythms tend to get thrown off as you age. Uh, melatonin production tends to go down as you age. And so maintaining really regular practices as far as timing of your sleep schedule, when you go to sleep, when you wake up, the things that you do in the evenings, avoiding the blue lights and screens, uh, getting sunshine during the day to help you maintain that really good uh, sleep so those are the five. Those are really interesting. So these five things that help you be a super ager, do you suggest everybody starts them now and they're just a lifestyle factor or is this something that you just give these 80 year olds? <laughs> no, definitely. I, I don't think most people who are super agers are poor agers until the age of 80 and then they flip a switch and become super <laughs> agers. I think this is definitely something where they've started to practice. Again, it could have been in their 30s, 40s, 50s. They might have started later in life, but still it's a process that you have to develop over time. And so definitely the sooner the better uh, implementing each of those into your life. Well, honestly, these things are good for even kids. I mean, these are good things to live a healthy lifestyle at any age. So I love right. that they help you be a super ager. But talking about aging... I mean, my mom is in her 80s and it's made me really reevaluate how I live my life and what the lifestyles and the health factors and things that I want to be aware of as I age. And so Alzheimer's has actually been a topic that I've been curious about because I feel like mm -hmm. she has a little bit of dementia setting in. And so let's talk about Alzheimer's because I know you've done a ton of research on this because of your dad. And so maybe yeah. let's just talk about what it is and maybe what causes it. Yeah, that could be a really long conversation, but I'll keep <laughs> it brief <laughs> because uh, it depends on who you ask, honestly. But if we take all of the research and kind of break it down. So Alzheimer's disease, first of all, just, just quick definition wise, there's dementia. That's kind of the umbrella term, meaning cognitive decline. And then there's Alzheimer's being the most common type of dementia. And within Alzheimer's, the trick that, that I think research didn't catch up on or hasn't figured out until recently is that Alzheimer's is really also a really broad term. There's actually multiple subtypes. Uh, Dr. Bredesen and his team at UCLA kind of found six subtypes specifically of Alzheimer's disease as they kind of took all the people that fit into that category. And those subtypes are inflammatory. So that's kind of where that infectious subtype fits in. So people who have uh, certain chronic infections, other things that trigger inflammatory conditions in the body and the brain that can lead to Alzheimer's disease. And again, maybe I should back up just for a second. What we see as far as pathology in Alzheimer's disease, as a lot of people know, is beta amyloid plaques. So this protein that's beta amyloid actually is part of our immune system in the brain, uh, which is just now what we've realized over these past few years. But we see plaques of this kind of build up in people's brains. And then we see tangles of these tau proteins that also show up in brains. So for the research has focused for so long on what causes the plaque to build up and the tau tangles to, to happen. And more importantly, how do we prevent that from happening? And so there have been a host of medications on trying to prevent that from happening or reversing it. 
and none of them seem to help with Alzheimer's disease at all. And so that's been the frustrating process. But what we've realized again is that the beta amyloid plaque is actually part of our immune system. And so when there's an infection, for example, that beta amyloid actually goes in and ingests and tries to protect or shield your brain, I should say, from that infection, from that toxin, whatever it is. So this is what they're finding. That might trigger an inflammatory process. So inflammatory is the first type. The next type, and one of the reasons why Alzheimer's has been termed type 3 diabetes, is called glycotoxic, meaning high blood sugar, the effects of high insulin. Uh, that's a really common subtype of Alzheimer's disease. Interestingly, as I studied these subtypes, uh, I found my dad fitting into multiple subtypes of these, and I find that with several of our patients too. But then type 3 is going to be atrophic subtype. And what atrophic means is lack of growth factors. And that is like hormones. So we see a, a pretty big jump in women, for example, of cognitive decline after menopause, because uh, if they don't get adequate hormone uh, stimulation in their brain, then they can, uh, they'll see the decreased growth of nerve cells. But it's also micronutrients. It's also the reason why hearing loss contributes to cognitive decline. And so all of those are kind of lack of stimulation, lack of growth factors. And then I'm, we talked about toxic is the next subtype. And that is brand new in the research with Dr. Bredesen and his team. And that's, we talked about those toxins already, uh, specific types that are worse for the brain. And then there's traumatic, meaning like people who suffer multiple head injuries, uh, concussions, or really bad head injuries. Uh, that's a, a subtype we see in a lot of uh, certain professional athletes in football and hockey and other sports in the military. And then also there's vascular, which is kind of problems with circulation in the brain or tiny little strokes actually that can uh, accumulate effects over time. Wow. I didn't realize there were six different types. That's really interesting. So the first few of them sound like we could maybe prevent Alzheimer's if we took care of ourselves, I mean, a lot of it sounded like nutrients and blood sugar levels and inflammation, things like that. Is that correct? Or I shouldn't say that. No, it's absolutely correct. It's for whatever reason, controversial to say you can prevent Alzheimer's disease, but the majority, the vast majority of cases are preventable. So interesting. So is it genetic at all? Because you hear that quite often. There are definitely genetic components. The most well-known would be that APOE gene. It is worth looking into genetic status, the APOE4. So most commonly people will have APOE3 now as a kind of potentially protective against Alzheimer's disease. APOE4, if you have one copy, it increases your risk a little bit. Two copies increases your risk dramatically for uh, Alzheimer's disease. But even if you have those genetics, even if you're homozygous or two copies of APOE4, still the majority of what you know, people talk about like genes versus environment, what the genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. So as long as you do what you can to prevent, most of the time, it's still preventable. That's really interesting. So can anyone just go get these tested like in blood work to see if they have that gene? Yeah, you can do it. I mean, even like 23andMe. In fact, I think it's on sale this week. If anybody wants to grab it still for Cyber Week, I'm not making any money off of that. So don't worry. <laughs> Uh, but there are a lot of other, uh, if you want your genetic uh, testing to be protected and not open to the government, a lot of people are worried about, then there are other tests that you can do. But yeah, it's a, it's an easily testable gene. Okay, that's good to know. So back to these six different subtypes of Alzheimer's. The first one was inflammation, correct? Yeah. And so are we talking about like eating inflammatory foods and being too stressed for years and years? Is that what we're talking about? Yes. And I'm glad you brought up the stress part of it as well. So yeah, it has to do with inflammatory foods. It has to do with stress. It uh, often has to do with lack of sleep can produce an inflammatory effect. It, can, it has to do with leaky gut, right? That as we have inflammatory foods and maybe we're stressed out and we're not sleeping and maybe we have certain infections, then our gut becomes leaky. And then that leads to blood brain barrier permeability or leaky brain. And then that creates or starts to open up the pathway for that inflammatory process in the brain. Okay. I'm glad you just brought that up because I feel like a lot of people understand leaky gut, but I feel like 
leaky brain or the blood-brain barrier is sort of a newer thing. Will you just explain what that is and what you're talking about? Yeah, our brain has such a cool system for keeping out things that shouldn't be in there that might cause problems in the brain. So it's basically the blood vessels inside the brain have this barrier, blood-brain barrier, uh, that's very protective. There's an interesting connection, this gut-brain axis, it's called, where if you have, again, inflammation in the gut that then leads to permeability in the intestines, and that's just breakdown of, of junctions that are kind of keeping things out of the bloodstream, out of our bodies that shouldn't come in from the gut, as that becomes permeable, then it opens the pathway for blood-brain barrier to also become permeable. There's a connection between those two things. Uh, where things that come into our, our gut stir up an inflammatory process that then lead to, again, increased permeability, or if you can imagine like bricks tightly packed together. And so nothing is getting through that. And then over time, maybe wind and rain and, and people are hacking away at the wall, you get little tiny holes in there. Uh, and so things get through that normally wouldn't, uh, like in a dam, for example, now water starts leaking through there. And that has downstream effects. And one of those is going to be in the brain. So you get blood-brain barrier permeability where now inflammatory things that typically are not going into the brain now are, are able to get in there and our brain stirs up its own inflammatory process. Really interesting. I'm glad you explained that, but I have two questions. What do you think is causing these junctions to open up or, you know, the little holes in the brick wall analogy? What's causing this? What are we eating or doing in our gut that's causing these holes? Certain infections we know actually cause those holes. So if you have, for example, parasitic infections in the gut, we know that that can contribute to more leaky gut. Uh, we know that certain bacteria, we know that certain yeast like candida, certain viruses can cause that gut permeability, including COVID actually. It's one of the things that COVID seems to do is cause gut permeability. And then that contributes to this major inflammatory cascade. Um, so infections are a part of that. And then stress you mentioned, we know that as cortisol goes up, it actually decreases barrier function. And so you start to get again, some of those holes that, that show up in there. Lack of sleep I mentioned. So if you go more than two days in a row with inadequate sleep, you start to get gut permeability. Now, it's not like a, <clears throat> a brick wall so much because it's very much fluid, meaning if you don't sleep very well for a few nights in a row and then we kind of correct that, then it, it just uh, you can correct the gut permeability. Uh, research has shown that for a lot of people, if you have gluten, for example, you get increased gut permeability. Is that always a bad thing? Maybe not. There's, there's some idea of hormesis, meaning you can have a little bit of stress, a little bit of strain on that gut, and it may actually strengthen your immune system to be exposed to some things. Hmm. But once you reach a certain point, then that gut permeability becomes a major issue. Your body starts to release inflammatory markers that are going to really create this cascade and start to damage uh, healthy tissue. So sleep is one of those toxins are some of those some of the toxins we talked about some of the toxins in our food so if you're eating for example if you don't eat organic food you're getting kind of pesticides and other chemicals on your food that you take in over time those can also create that inflammatory process in the gut unhealthy oils certainly uh, hydrogenated oils uh, those things can cause uh, problems with the gut um, and overly processed. Another one is highly processed carbs. So any sort of highly processed foods are going to likely contribute to leaky gut. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of studies done on high fructose corn syrup too, contributing to that. So yes. yeah, it goes back to, you know, knowing what you're eating and eating real foods and taking care of your body. Okay, so now you've explained this gut inflammation because of leaky gut, and then it causes this inflammation in the brain. And so when it causes this inflammation in the brain, what else besides like Alzheimer's or cognitive decline can that cause? Well, I would say for most people, what it does first is causes brain fog. Uh, that seems to be the symptom that a lot of people come in with is just less clarity in their thought processes. We see that with COVID for sure. Long COVID is kind of chronic brain fog, inability to kind of focus and think clearly. So that's a big part of it. 
Uh, it can even cause, like in kids, you can get to the point where it's more like ADD, ADHD, because you, they really have an inability to focus and concentrate. And then other conditions, uh, mental health conditions are certainly a possibility where you can get more depression and anxiety. I've had a few patients that have really been shocked by the way that food affected them. Uh, we found markers of leaky gut in their initial workup that we did. And, and so we did this sort of gut healing process, put them on an elimination diet. And then uh, when we reintroduced as part of that process, we do a reintroduction at the end, especially this one woman, I remember she came back in, she had suffered with really terrible depression for years, uh, went through this elimination diet, felt so much better. And when she reintroduced sugar, it was like, boom, just right away, that same depression came right back. And so it's interesting to see how specific foods, and that might be a sensitivity to a food, or it might just be the food itself causes an inflammatory process in there and causes that leaky gut, gets to the brain, gut, uh, leaky brain, and you get that, that same effect and, and mental health issues. So it's not that all depression and anxiety are caused by that, but it definitely contributes for a lot of people. Yes, it does. I know it does for me at least. I feel much better mentally when I'm eating healthy. So I can relate to that lady. But this is interesting mm -hmm. because ADHD is on the rise, depression's on the rise, anxiety's on the rise, but yet we're eating worse and worse as a society. So it's just this correlation that this food is affecting our brain health, but yet we're not even really talking about brain health very much, I feel like. Yeah, it's true. And this is where I so appreciate people like you who decide, hey, I'm going to do something about this. Let's make a product that makes it easier for people to eat clean. Because my job gets so much easier when it's easier for people to implement what we recommend. Uh, I would say five years ago, it was much more challenging, especially 10 years ago, to try to eat a really clean diet because it, a lot of that stuff wasn't on the shelves. And so people had to do a lot more on their own. Uh, and I think now with people like you and products like just ingredients, it, it makes it so much easier to, to be aware, not only aware, but, but make it a uh, part of your lifestyle. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But it is, I feel like that's true because 10 years ago, I had to shop at like Whole Foods or somewhere like that to get the good stuff where now you can get it at Costco, Target, Walmart, you know, anywhere, which is awesome. But I do want to talk to you about, I think it was the third subtype of Alzheimer's you talked about, or maybe it's the second one, talking about it being called type three diabetes. So I just read a study yesterday that over 97 million Americans are pre-diabetic. So correlating those two, I'm like, wow, we're going to maybe have a huge influx of Alzheimer's if we don't deal with these pre-diabetic people, correct? Uh, it's so true. If you step back and look at where researchers are estimating that we're going to be in 20 years as far as Alzheimer's goes, it's a pretty scary number. Uh, and that's a combination of more toxins being poured into our environment and all these things, but definitely pre-diabetes insulin resistance is really an epidemic right now and something that, that we need to do something about because it's not just the brain. I mean, that's a huge, huge part of it, but it's going to be so many other chronic diseases that are going to be caused by uh, insulin resistance. So again, this is something that can be fixed. So uh, I love when people come in and we see them in their pre-diabetes range and I celebrate because I'm like, perfect. We caught this now. Even if you just got into the diabetes range, oftentimes we can really just completely reverse that as long as somebody's willing to take some, some steps to, to make that effort as far as implementing specific nutrition and movement and maybe taking some targeted nutritional supplements and such. So yeah, it's a huge problem, but it doesn't need to be. Yeah, it doesn't. I love that you love that they're pre-diabetic because you know they can work on it and reverse it. And so are some of the things watching their sugars, watching what they're eating, getting them to exercise, are those the main things? Yeah, yeah, it's a big part of it. It's just being aware. I think mindfulness is a big part of it. I think so many people in our culture and our society, food becomes more a part of like, I don't know that, yeah, the culture, right? Even like in church or in community events that there's kind of sugar everywhere. Once you shift that to being mindful about what you're taking in, people start to read labels. They realize, oh, this condiment that I've used my whole life is full of sugar, is full of high fructose corn syrup. And so they start to just be aware of what they put into their body. 
that's a huge part of it. And so, yeah, cutting down on sugars, inflammatory oils, increasing fiber intake, vegetables, nuts and seeds, wild caught fish, organic foods, grass fed beef. Once they kind of shift to that type of eating, then uh, it makes a huge difference. And then of course, movement. Yeah. Good to know. Okay. So I have a question though about insulin resistance and being pre-diabetic because sometimes they get intertwined and mixed together. Those two, if you have insulin resistance, are you pre-diabetic or no? They often go hand in hand. Okay. Uh, meaning insulin resistance is typically the process that leads to prediabetes and diabetes, but not necessarily. There are other conditions where you can just have high insulin and have a normal blood sugar, like PCOS, for example, is one of those conditions. Or again, sometimes we'll find insulin is high, but the glucose hasn't risen yet. So we're not in the prediabetes range. So prediabetes for a hemoglobin A1C is between 5.7 and 6.4. So sometimes we'll catch people at 5.5, 5.6, where they're almost prediabetic uh, in that sort of official uh, category, but their insulin is high. And so it doesn't always go hand in hand, but yeah, usually does lead to it. And maybe just so your audience understands real quick that what insulin resistance is, it just means insulin has to unlock the uh, cell receptors so that our cell can pull in glucose, use it for ATP production and energy and all of that. Uh, and if we don't have that insulin unlocking the cell, we can't use the glucose in our blood. And so part of the insulin resistance problem is we get so much insulin in our blood. If people eat high sugar foods all the time, the cell's like, I don't need any more glucose. It actually changes the configuration of the insulin receptor. And so our pancreas, first of all, has to produce more insulin. So we're, we're now flooding our body with insulin. We know that insulin is the ultimate fat cell fertilizer. And so the more insulin that we have in our body, the more it's going to take the things we eat and turn them into fat cells. If we can start to reverse that process, cut down on what raises our blood sugar, that decreases the insulin, the cell receptors change, and now we can have a, a more normal relationship there. I love that explanation. And I know a lot of people on social media are trying to talk about keeping those blood glucose levels more balanced because I feel like, you know, as moms, snacks will be out and, you know, they have a little bit of some goldfish and it spikes their blood sugar. And then a few minutes later, they pick on some fruit snacks and it spikes their blood sugar. And then they have a sandwich on white bread, you know, and it spikes their blood sugar. So that is one of the things that is the issue, right? Is just all this snacking on all these, you know, sugary foods rather than just eating a carb with like a fat or a protein to help keep those levels more balanced, correct? Definitely. Yeah. A lot of people, you're right, kind of ride that blood sugar roller coaster all day long and don't realize like that how much it affects them until they stop. So yeah, mood wise, energy wise, all of it. Yeah. And crazy enough, those blood sugar imbalances up and down the roller coaster, like you said, causes inflammation so it can also contribute to brain inflammation correct right yep it all comes down yeah. to what we eat and when we eat and things like that it's so true yeah and you know what's interesting is you know we, we've shared some different studies on like you can pair really good food so for example it doesn't mean you can't ever eat carbs again right uh, it just means you're again mindful about what you eat you're pairing it with the right things like you talked about proteins like, for example, if you go to a barbecue and you know you're going to eat a burger that's probably been charred, we know charred meat is going to increase your inflammation, for example, then if you pair that with like avocados or you season it with like turmeric or cumin, then those the antioxidant benefits, anti-inflammatory benefits from those foods will actually block some of that inflammation. And so it doesn't mean you should eat that all the time and just pair it with good food, but it means that you can still potentially eat some of those foods that maybe you really love, but doing it in the right way, maybe grass-fed beef, maybe don't char it every time. If you can cook it in a different way, finding the right foods to pair with it is, is a really helpful thing. The right balance. I love that. Okay. I want to just ask you as we are wrapping up here, a few last questions. I know that there are foods that are really good for brain health. What do you think are the foods that are the best for brain health? So as we went through this research to kind of create our brain lift program, we dove into so much on what specific foods can we encourage people to eat on a daily basis. We wanted it to be as simple as possible so that 
people weren't always kind of kicking themselves about, I can't eat this, I can't eat that. And so what the research seems to support, we, we call them the, the five F's, uh, maybe six F's. Uh, and so we'll talk about some of those things. But one of those is going to be fiber. So we know that fiber, for example, is huge in brain health, in decreasing inflammation, in helping with satiety so we don't just snack on carbs all the time, and helping with our cholesterol and blood sugar levels. So fiber is a big part of that, and that's going to be some healthy grains, for example, or, or whole grains, especially vegetables. So raw vegetables are going to be packed with fiber. Uh, fruits are going to have fiber. So fiber is a big one. And then uh, this one doesn't start with an F, but it, it kind of fits the same idea. Phytonutrients. Phytonutrients is going to be the more colorful, the better. So we talked about antioxidant-rich foods. Those are going to be your berries and cherries and dark leafy green veggies. Uh, if there's anything that you definitely want to eat every single day to help with your brain health, it's going to be those things, those antioxidant-rich, really colorful, phytonutrient-rich vegetables and fruits. Um, again, that's berries, cherries, pomegranates, green leafy vegetables, colorful squash, things like that that are packed with color. So that's phytonutrients, flavor we talked about. So those are the herbs and spices. And again, this is easy. Just get, you know, if you can grow your own, great on the fresh herbs, but otherwise dried is, is also good. So dried herbs and spices, add those into your foods. Uh, and that will make a big difference in the inflammation in your brain. And then healthy fats is another one. So this is one that a lot of people think I shouldn't eat fat, right? Fat has been shunned in so many ways. And yet what I see, and this, this I see so often is people will come in with major brain issues and we find their cholesterol is way too low. They may be on a statin medication that's lowering it. They may be on a low fat diet that's lowering it. And so we have to push healthy fats back into their diet so they make the hormones that they need. So they can make the myelin sheath that, that lines those nerve cells. Uh, so healthy fats, meaning like nuts and seeds, avocados, olive oil, wild caught fish, those omega-3 uh, fatty acids, all of that's going to be those, those healthy fats that we're talking about. And then let's see. So we talked about flavor, fiber, phytonutrients, fats. Uh, How about another one? Oh, yeah. I was going to Go say, I, I'm going to guess what it is if it starts with yeah. an F. Let's hear it. Is number five fermented foods? Yeah, perfect. So <laughs> fermented foods is number five. And that's, that's a huge one for our gut. Again, this is that gut-brain connection. If we can line our gut with really healthy populations of good bacteria, then that allows our brain to have a lot of the benefits that it needs. So we know fermented foods are a huge one for the brain, for our gut, for overall, overall health, uh, decreasing inflammation, and so that's things like fermented vegetables, like sauerkraut, kimchi. Uh, if you can do dairy, then you can do things like kefir, yogurt, other fermented dairy, fermented like water kefirs. There are a lot of drinks out there now that have uh, fermentation to them. So not alcohol, but <laughs> fermentation right. in, in a healthy gut probiotic way. And then the, the sixth one isn't necessarily what you eat, but it's actually what you don't eat, which is fasting. That's a huge one for things that you can do on a regular basis, whether that's intermittent fast and just kind of shrink your eating window. Uh, you should definitely have at least three hours before you go to bed that you're not eating because that allows the gut to clean itself out. It allows the brain to go through the same cleaning process effectively at night. Uh, so that's a big part of it. So fasting or prolonged fast. So you can do 24 hour fast. Uh, I like to do that once a week. Uh, some people like to do more like 36, 72 hour fast, uh, or some people even five to 10 day fast. So fasting is a really, really helpful one and one that you want to work with somebody who knows what they're doing when you, when you start your fasting. Yeah, we could do a whole show on intermittent fasting because anytime someone brings that up, I get so many questions and they all want to know mm -hmm. like, you know, what time frame should I do and how often? And yeah, so we might have to have you on for a second show for intermittent <laughs> fasting. But I love those five F's, now six F's, I guess. That's really helpful for people to just remember, okay, I'm going to focus on those six F's. But I'm curious because I know people will ask, they're going to say, well, are there some type of lab tests that I can go do to see if my brain health is optimal or if I need to work on brain health? Or is there really nothing out there to test it? What are your thoughts? Well, there's there are cognitive tests that I do think are helpful. Uh, one of the 
the terms that Dr. Bredesen and his team came up with was cognoscopy. So we do like colonoscopies and, and other tests, screening tests regularly, but we don't do regular screening tests for our brain. And so that's something that, that I think is really helpful. You can do the MOCA, which is a cognitive decline, Montreal cognitive decline assessment. Uh, you can do other programs like uh, Brain HQ is a brain training program where you can go on and get a, a cognitive test done. As far as blood tests go, these are the things where we're, we're not necessarily testing brain function, but we're testing the things that we've talked about that put your brain at risk. So we're looking at blood sugar, we're looking at insulin, we're looking at uh, inflammatory markers like the C-reactive protein, specifically the high sensitivity, HSCRP is a really important one. We're looking at micronutrients uh, like vitamin D, like B12 and folate. Uh, like homocysteine that tells us if you're using your B vitamins, zinc and copper and the balance between those. Uh, we look at hormone levels to see if you have, again, adequate growth factors. Uh, so that uh, and thyroid, that's another one that, that's important for the brain. So all of those are kind of the things that we use to test the brain rather than kind of testing like there are a lot of potential Alzheimer's blood tests that are coming out or in the, in the study phases right now but none of them that are super accurate at this point. Okay, so those first few tests you talked about, are those just something that people can find online and Google that? Yep. Okay, perfect. Well, why don't you tell people where they can find you and are you still taking patients these days? Yeah, yeah, we uh, are doing actually some new and exciting things I'll share, but uh, so you can find me, Dr. Scott Norda on social media, on uh uh, Instagram is, is where we post a lot of kind of daily reels and continue to share education and brain hacks and all of that. So uh, Dr. Scott Norda and then uh, resolveutah.com is our website. So you can come there and learn more about what we do. We have a clinic, but we do a lot of our practice is actually virtual. Uh, so we work with people all over the country and even all over the world in kind of implementing these lifestyle changes and, and doing testing and all of that. Um, we have a functional medicine practice uh, that's called Resolve Medical. We have a monthly membership that, that people can join. We have that brain lift six month program that's real intensive with health coach support and all of that. What we're introducing this year, I mentioned that I, I'm so passionate about longevity and we're actually uh, launching a new longevity community where people can come we're going to pick specific tests that are going to give us an idea of kind of, for example, where your inflammation is. Uh, and what I didn't mention is in brain health specifically and, and longevity in general, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is key, meaning that kind of getting out of your comfort zone, pushing yourself, whether that's cold water, whether that's a lot of heat uh, in a sauna, whether that's fasting or exercise or pushing your brain to learn new things, whatever it is getting comfortable with new foods, socializing, all of those things that maybe are difficult for us are going to be the things that promote longevity. And so we're going to do challenges around each of those things, a new challenge each month. People can join our longevity community and be a part of that. So, and if they want to, they can do the test. We're going to do some blood tests at the beginning, do the challenge throughout the month, and then do a blood test at the end and kind of see how did that specific challenge affect these markers in your blood. And so anyway, that's, uh, that's what we're launching. Oh, that's really interesting. Really quick, though, tell people, because I forgot to ask you about the Brain Lift program. Is that just to help people get their brain in optimal health, or is that for those that are already struggling? What is that? Yeah, so it was initially started specifically for those who are starting to notice maybe signs of uh, a little bit decreased memory, brain fog, uh, decreased in, uh, a decreased ability to concentrate and focus, so kind of prevention of cognitive decline. People who are in my situation where they know they're at risk for cognitive decline genetically, they maybe had a parent who's gone through it. And then we've also added specific components in it for like long COVID-related brain fog. So it, that's what it's for. Wow, that can be almost anyone could join that. Is that <laughs> on your website as well? Uh, it does talk about that on the website, yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of this info. I know my listeners have learned a lot. Are there any other tips that you want to share before we wrap up? You know, I would just say it's important. I mentioned getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And and one of the things that I think is really important is just, again, connecting with other people. A 
a lot of times when people get overly concerned about, I can't eat this, I can't do that, I need to exercise, but I just don't want to. And it, it actually increases their stress and maybe worsens their health. But the more that you can kind of connect with other people and create a community around like, let's be healthy together and let's do things that we enjoy that are also really good for us. I think that's how we change public health in general, change the tra trajectory of where this Alzheimer's epidemic is going is starting to pull each other in and do things together. I love that advice. That is really great advice. Like I said, I know the listeners have learned so much and I always end my podcast by asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Yeah, I've heard you ask this question before uh, and lots of interesting answers. Uh, maybe somebody's already said this before. I, I struggled to decide what the best ingredient is, but I would say for me, what I, what I see for myself uh, and for the people around me is I'm going to say joy. Finding joy in the things that you do and the people that you're with in your work is so key to just having a happy, healthy life. It brings vitality. Those people who I find that I'm working with in their 80s and 90s who are just bouncing off the walls and uh, super healthy always find ways to just have joy, even in the midst of challenges, even Though a lot of those are the ones who've gone through the biggest trials in their lives and lost the people, some people that they love or gone through really health, big health challenges. It's, if you can find joy uh, in the good and the bad, then that's, a, that's the ingredient of life. I love that. Um, along those lines, we have a senior citizen community that neighbors my community. And so it's been fun over the years watching these people as they age and the ones that are like in their 80s and 90s and still doing amazing, they're the ones that are out having lunch with friends and serving others at places and gardening and riding bikes and they'll be out on walks with their friends. And I'm like, they're finding mm. joy through life and doing the things that find yeah. them joy and serving others to find joy. And, you know, they've got strong family connections still. And they're just thriving in their 80s and 90s. And so I love that you use the word joy because I've seen that with these neighbors of mine. Thank you again for being here. All my listeners, I promise if you go follow him, you will learn a lot. I love your reels. I love what you talk about. I love that you're trying to teach others how to live a healthy lifestyle. And so thank you for being here today, but thank you for everything that you do on social media and with your practice. Thank you, Carolyn. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. I love providing you with content to educate you and your families. To pay it forward, please subscribe to the show and leave a review. These help us reach more people looking for better help. If you found something useful or interesting, the greatest compliment you can give us is sharing the show with someone you know. Remember, wellness is a journey and you are never alone.